This is All That Matters. I'm Chris Chang and Phillips. And I'm Jonathan Dick. John, what were you doing in 2001? Uh, probably, I don't know, shopping at the local thrift store, uh, thinking about grunge music, and trying to get some of my classmates to notice me. Hmm. Ah. So you weren't living on the moon or flying off to Jupiter to investigate a mysterious black monolith? Uh, not that I can recall. Hmm. That's funny because Arthur C. Clarke promised us that in 2001, A Space Odyssey. We were supposed to be walking around artificial gravity rings and spaceships by now. Okay, I see what you're getting at, but that wasn't really a promise, was it? See, what most people don't remember is that he also wrote sequels called 2010 and 2061 and 3001, The Final Odyssey. By 2061, we're supposed to be visiting Halley's Comet on sightseeing tours. By 3001, we're supposed to have space elevators and colonies on Jupiter's moons. (laughs) Uh, I've heard of 2010 because it was also made into a movie, but Mm -hmm. the others uh, are new to me. Mm -hmm. Um, Just because he wrote about all that doesn't mean it's necessarily going to happen or supposed to happen. It's just what could have happened, I guess. It feels like it was supposed to happen, though. You know, it was because of those books. Living on Earth since 2001 has been, honestly, kind of a letdown. Whoa. Uh, What's the point of looking back at them, then? What's the point of remembering the future that didn't happen? That is a good question. Well, why don't we try to figure it out? If you're just tuning in, All That Matters is a weekly show about arts and culture around Alberta. Each week, we try to take small bites out of a big question. So this week, let's see if we can find out... What's the point in remembering all these possible futures that could have come to pass, but never did? We've got stories about deceptively beautiful renderings, the never-built Omniplex, and a hidden underground station. Stay with us. Metroline, Valley Line, the city of Edmonton has a lot of LRT expansion in its future. But what about the light rail transit of the past? Whatever happened to those plans? This next story is about a physical future, Future Station, an urban myth here in Edmonton, an underground station built in the 70s but never used. And now it's getting a new life, a new future, I guess, at the Art Gallery of Alberta. Nikki Weirt explains. It's called Future Station. It's empty, a shell. It sits between Churchill Station and Stadium Station, below Edmonton's old Remand Centre. And according to urban legend, was designed so one day, in the future, it would carry prisoners from Edmonton to the provincial jail in Fort Saskatchewan. It's a reminder of what used to be Edmonton's plan for light rail transit. I guess I see it differently, not necessarily as a loss, because we didn't lose it. It exists, and it's still there. It's just not functional, or it's waiting for its function. So it could be opened up. It just hasn't, you know, like... It's, it's structurally there. So um, that's kind of amazing to see it in that way and to see it more as like a potentiality in the positive sense and, and what that could, could bring if you did see it in that way. Christy Trunier curated Future Station, the 2015 Alberta Biennial of Contemporary Art. It's an exhibit in the Art Gallery of Alberta, Enterprise Square, and the Gibson Block Building in Edmonton. Future Station literally is a half-built LRT station in the downtown core of Edmonton. In my imagination, it was kind of like an underground bunker that we could go and look in. And it wasn't like that at all. It was actually just 
a platform that had been concreted in, the walls had been concreted in. And if you took the LRT from Churchill to the next station north, you would actually go through Future Station all the time and not know it. So to me, that was a little bit of a metaphor for trying to see contemporary art in a new way in the province and to basically find new ways of looking at, new perspectives of looking at an artist's work. Together, the words future and station sound magical, like some kind of mystical far-off platform where you would park a spaceship. But apart, you have future, so what's coming, and station, what is. So how what is inscribes what the future can be. And so you can, you can never have a future without a present. You know, you, you need to have the present in order to get to, or the, the link of it is always inscribed in it. What did it feel like when you were down there? I guess it was kind of like my eyes were opening and I was seeing something for what it really was, for what it literally was, and um, understanding the space and the potentiality of what it could have been. So imagining all these people that would have been using the station and the opening of what that station would have been to this whole location. So in terms of contemporary art, thinking of the biennial as a similar platform where artists are selected and it what it does is it opens up a new discussion or understanding for where things could go. So the biennial is really an opening of a discussion in the province for what's happening between and amongst the artists in their relation to place, in the experience of what the province has become even in two short years. So things like the flooding in Calgary, the changing, like the really dramatic change in the economy um, from a complete boom when I began researching to, like, you know, this dramatic drop in oil prices. Christy wanted to analyze the status of art in the ever-changing province that is Alberta. The extreme cycles of darkness, yet the predictability of the seasons, and how those things affected the production cycles of the artists that were chosen. My friend Alma Louise Vischer is one of the over 40 artists in the Biennial. I met with her at Transcend Downtown How's to going? talk about her piece. Rope Steady. She's an Edmonton-based artist whose work primarily involves textiles, installation, and video. Rope Steady hangs in the Enterprise Square Gallery. I've seen it, and it's beautiful. It's this magical, mystical cloud of nylon. And I spent um, a month in Iceland, and about 10 hours a week since from September to uh, January, unraveling nylon rope. And it's a contemporary retelling of Rumpelstiltskin and the sort of alchemic process of changing something every day, nylon rope or in Rumpelstiltskin's case, straw, into something um, magical or important, like gold or art. And it sort of questions the um, time we put into art and sort of the everyday material that we disregard, like nylon rope and how we can change it so that transformation what do you think of when you think of future station um, I guess I think of possibilities that we can imagine and then also like what we are doing now to get there how does your rope study fit into that um, I guess the absurdity of the everyday 
and how um, a rep- like just the continual forward motion of time, like and how much time we waste and how much time we invest in things that maybe aren't important or um, but altogether they become our future. Austerity, psychology, natural forces and detritus or waste were the themes that Christy developed for the exhibit. She says Elma's work fits into the theme of austerity, working with one material and transforming it, altering its state. And in Elma's work you know, something simple like a piece of rope can inform and transform into something so elaborate and beautiful and floating and, you know, it can have all these other qualities when it's just treated in such a caring, careful way. Christy and Alma see potential in Future Station. Alma told me she doesn't want to see it, though. She doesn't want to go down there. Because to her, it exists as this myth. And to her, that seems more exciting than a decrepit and closed-off concrete station. And the idea of having an urban myth, you know, over time, urban myths and the stories that are inscribed in a place long after the evidence of them is gone, start to build what culture truly is. So even though the artworks might not exist longer, they happened for this exhibition and people saw them and they existed and they might not be assembled together in the same format, but you know they're here, they're visual, people experience them. And so that builds a narrative of what's going on and that is a part of building culture. So I do think that the urban myth and the you know, hidden stories of a city and a province build in the telling of what it really is. Thanks to Christy Trenier and Alma Louise Vischer. The Future Station exhibit is open until May 3rd, And the one at Enterprise Square is free, so go check it out. You're listening to All That Matters from CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton and around the world at CJSR.com. Each week, we try to take small bites out of a big question. This week, why bother remembering possible futures that never came to be? So one gap between the future we think is going to happen and the reality of what plays out is those flashy renderings of future buildings. Before mm. a building goes up, you know, the, the public only has those renderings to go on when we're talking about what a building is going to look like. I started thinking about the gap between the promise and reality when I was reading an article about the McEwen University Center for Arts and Culture. You go to the old one, right? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> McEwen is moving out of that, like, you know. Uh, it's an orange monolith. The orange monolith um, (laughs) to a new building at its downtown campus. And the Edmonton Journal had the most inane article about this online a little while ago. The reporter who wrote it, Elise Stolte, she's a good reporter. I generally really enjoy her writing. (laughs) But the headline question was just terrible. Is the splash of green in the new Center for Arts and Culture too much for Edmonton? She probably didn't come up with the headline. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> right? It's such a patronizing question, though. Are Edmontonians prepared for a strip of green coloring on the outside of a rectangular building? It's clickbait. But she attached some of the social media response to her article. And one of the comments mentioned that the design of the Center for Arts and Culture had actually changed a lot from 2014 hmm. when Bing Tom Architects first presented it. In the renderings, it looks a lot boxier now, a lot less ambitious, which made me wonder, how does the company who made the initial rendering video feel about that? The company who Mm. actually made the fancy video animation and some of the pictures. So I called them up. Here's Colin Prothrow, program director at Laptop. 
And people just have to remember that the rendering is not the final product. It's just the starting point with which you move forward into everything else. Hi, hi, my name is Colin Prothero. I work for Laptop Rendering. We're located in Venice Beach, California. And what does Laptop do for architects and design firms? So, in generally, lots of times, people don't understand architectural drawing, and we need to show people what this building will look like before we get to the expensive phase of actually building the building. So we provide all types of services. Usually the final output is an image or an animation, but lots of times people will come to us not actually knowing themselves what things will look like. So we'll do research, provide people's options, material, palette. When you're working on renderings for a building that the public will interact with a lot, like McCune University's Center for Arts and Culture, who is the intended audience for the images or animations? That's always the first question we tend to ask when architects, who are actually the people that um, are going to see this? Because lots of times people uh, react differently to different images. So, But that's also kind of like the danger, you know, being too dramatic while actually might be really appealing to the non-architectural viewer. In reality, the architecture is not going to look anything like that. So, you know, you kind of have to be careful between, like, how much reality versus how much is what the person wants to see. I think for me, as I'm learning about this, and I think for a lot of listeners, they'd be surprised to learn that what goes into an image is not always supposed to be a depiction of reality. So what are the other ingredients that you try to include? Well, yeah, it's um, so, I mean, like we're always trying to, you know, suggest possibilities, maybe open the mind of someone, get them thinking about what could be, what might happen instead of actually what's going to happen. Very often we'll like, uh, you know, focus on the main aspects of a building and almost omit the faults, omit the, uh, you know, the less, you know, figured out parts to kind of show people what's, because at the same time, buildings are complicated and most of the time you have a 15 minute presentation sometimes even 30 seconds to convince someone what's going on but then you kind of become like you're trying we're trying to work at a more personal human scale so you know we're trying to throw in effects like atmosphere entourage um all types of those things that maybe not necessarily you get in a construction document but at the same time the average person doesn't really care that you use quarter-inch glass versus, you know, eight-inch glass or something like that. As an example of your process, can you walk us through some of the behind-the-scenes choices that your team made um, that a viewer might take for granted when they look at the images for the Center for Arts and Culture? Okay, so yeah, in general, like, people, like, people assume that the weather is perfect everywhere and that, you know, everyone wants to see the blue sky. They want to see the happy world, everything like that, especially uh, we've been doing a lot of work in like, you know, uh, East coast here and it's just been a miserable snowstorm. So I've heard over there, uh, we always want to throw a snow image in and people are just like, uh, do you know how long we've been in winter? Please, for the love of God, do not put any snow anywhere in the building. But at the same time, in reality, this building is going to exist for the majority of, you know, certain parts of the year in snow. I was looking at uh, some of the pictures, and I noticed there's a smart car driving by in one of the pictures. There's a bike going down the road. I didn't see any big kind of Edmonton pickup trucks. Um, is there 
intentionality behind that too, the types of transportation that are portrayed moving around the building? Yeah, well, yeah, that's the same thing. Everyone wants uh, back to the whole green architecture thing too. Everyone wants to have like, you know, bicycles because, you know, people just magically start riding their bikes to work uh, when a building's really nice. Uh, so, uh, so the theory seems to be. So, you know, but at the same time, you're asking yourself, what does that provide? Uh, the, yeah, we're, we're not particularly familiar with uh, the location other than what we've been conveyed and what we can find kind of like, uh, you know, via Google and all that other stuff. So, you know, there's always uh, a choice of what we want to do. And quite often, you know, we're just like, look, that's what does that add to the image? Nothing. I mean, in reality, it might be that way, but in the end, the building will be built and it will be seen how it is. And then at the end, the rendering will almost never be never be seen again for, you know, the rest of time. So mm. that's kind of... Uh, it's kind of like, you know, the salesmanship. So you start at the beginning. You always want to paint uh, the prettiest picture that you can imagine. And then as things go on, you kind of compromise. Uh, so the promo video that McEwen University published last year, um, made by Laptop, uh, it, it shows a, a very different building than the one that they're now showing. The original Bing Tom design is is uh, more swooping and almost surreal. There are these beautiful overhanging S-curves that jut out and kind of overlap along the length of the building. And the images that they're showing now are kind of more like a flat piano. Um, mm-hmm. The same qualities of the building, I think, are going to actually be there. You know, there's still this kind of very reflective facade going to interact with the sun. You know, the only time, you know, you're, the only thing I felt was really compromised was the curves. Well, the curves are much nicer. You can always understand that buildings have costs and feel like, okay, you know what, what's the first thing we can go? Okay, we can get rid of the curve, but we can still maintain the predominantly glass facade. Hmm. Um, so you weren't involved in creating those revised images for the Center for Arts and No, Culture? yeah, that was, that, was, that was definitely not us. So are renderings that vary so much from the final built design kind of an act of deception? Well, yeah, I know. It's, it's the same thing. It's like... Um, it is definitely an act of deception, but it's, you know, you it's like some people know that you're deceiving someone when you're going through it, and I feel like some people know don't know that they are actually deceiving someone by giving them this. That's kind of like why I feel like we come in as renderers. Like, you have to know the responsibility and the danger of deceiving people, you know, outright. I mean, obviously... The point is you shouldn't be going so far out of the line that it's so different uh, that, you know, it's unrecognizable by the second stage. But oftentimes that happens because what you what you proposed was unacceptable to begin with. So, but yeah, it's like that it is a fine line. But the same way, it's just like it, is advertising deceptive? Yes, it can be deceptive. But in the end, if you're happy with the product, it doesn't matter that, we lied at you at the beginning to get something you wanted. That's not necessarily lying. I mean, it's just kind of like we need to tell you what you want to hear to get the project going. And it's, sometimes people aren't uh, interested in hearing what is true and what is good and what is better. And they just want to, want to hear, see their vision, even though maybe their vision isn't appropriate. And you're always working these fine lines between, like, how much reality does someone need? Thanks to Colin Prothrow, Program Director at Laptop, for speaking to us from Venice Beach, California. You're listening to All That Matters from CJSR. 
Each week, we try to take small bites out of a big question. Today, we're asking why it's worth thinking about the futures we used to imagine, but never really uh, carried out. So, talking to Colin made me wonder, do we like being lied to? What do you mean? Well, it seems like we enjoy being promised shiny things, even when we know that they're not realistic. Yeah, I think that's most uh, modern entertainment. (laughs) (laughs) I, for one, enjoy seeing shiny things. Like, don't you remember looking at the Sears catalog when you were a kid? Uh, I mean, not the Sears catalog, but the wish book. Mm. And going through and thinking about all those things that you'll never have, but circling them anyway and showing them to your parents. I don't know. That was part of my childhood. And I it kind of, I think it prepared me for all the disappointments that would later come. <laughs> you know what else developers and politicians are always promising us? That the arena or the new museum or the latest mm. condo will revitalize downtown Edmonton. But this isn't the first time in Edmonton's relatively short history that downtown has been the focus of this kind of rejuvenation attention. It's just that, well, past efforts and past dreams of livening up Edmonton's core just never came to pass as they were once imagined. Take the Omniplex, for example. Heard of it? Neither had we. Here's Kay Rollins to bring us a story. The future is coming. We can't stop it, but no matter how hard we try to manage the future, to plan it and predict it, we can't guarantee that even our most fervent imaginings of what's to come will come to pass. Still, just because our past aspirations for the future don't always materialize in the present doesn't mean we can't learn something from those futuristic ideas of the past. But hey, what is a retro future? It's a made-up term. Um, it, it doesn't really exist as, as a discipline. But I think it's a, it's a useful term because it's, it's a way to express in the shorthand the visions of the future that were articulated in the past for the future, but never came to fruition. So through them, you get to see what people hoped for, what people dreamed about, what people aspired toward. That's Dr. Russell Cobb. My name is Russell Cobb. I am Associate Professor in Modern Languages and Cultural Studies at the University of Alberta. I'm working on Edmonton's retro futures, visions of what people thought the future would look like, but that never came to pass. I think it's a fascinating subject. Tells us a lot about who we used to be and who we think we're going to be. I called up Dr. Cobb to talk about an Edmontonian retro future, the Omniplex. Omniplex was, it had a long and tortured history. It started started in the early 60s when People realized in Edmonton that, that they were running out of space. There wasn't enough space for a hockey rink. There wasn't enough space for a football stadium. Um, <clears throat> there wasn't enough space for a convention center. Or And then also they were running out of space downtown, and downtown was kind of deteriorating. So somebody came up with this brilliant idea to try to cure basically all of these problems with one project and build an arena that would not just be a hockey arena, but it would be a convention center, a football stadium, movie theaters, uh, a place to hear concerts. It would host some Edmonton's finest restaurants. And um, it would also bring 
people back downtown. The Omniplex was a multi-sport, multi-purpose, air-conditioned monolith proposed for Edmonton's downtown in 1967. Edmonton developers had been deeply inspired by a tour of North American sports stadiums they took in the mid-60s. They were trying to come up with some ideas, and, and they went to Montreal, uh, they went to uh, Detroit, and then finally they went to Houston. And then it was in Houston that they really got inspired because Houston had just built the Astrodome, which was considered the eighth wonder of the world. <laughs> and it was you know, the space age dome that no one thought could be could be done. And it was the largest indoor arena in the world. It was the largest air-conditioned space in the world. Um, and... Uh, it, it seemed like the future. Air conditioning really was important to this project. Controlling the climate was super important. And I, and I think it's, it, was, it was a time where, you know, it's very different from, from today where we, many people, most people, I'd say, uh, are concerned with environmental impact and um, livability, sustainability, these kinds of things. Back in those days, it was all about controlling the environment. So you could create a space indoors where you wouldn't have to deal with any of the problems that you face outdoors. You know, you know in the winter, the ice and the snow, in the summer, the heat and humidity. Uh, it was kind of this idealized um, space that also also fit with the, 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 the feeling of the era, you know, the zeitgeist, which was like the future was, was, was space, was outer space, was the space age. And, was the Cold War, and we're all going to have to build spaceships and live in towers and have flying cars. <laughs> like the Jetsons. Like the Jetsons, yeah, exactly. The project really captured the city's imagination, but retrofuturistic spoiler alert, it never did get built. So what happened to the Omniplex if it was this great shining vision of the future? Why did it never come about? Yeah, well, there were two votes on it, and the first one, actually, people voted for it. And that was simply a vote um, saying, do you think this, this city should build this thing? And the majority said yes. But then they had to move to a second vote, which which basically put uh, allocated the money. And so that's where it ran into problems. Dr. Cobb explained that when it came down to it, Edmontonians had to vote on whether or not to raise taxes and at the same time push the city into debt in order to raise the funds for the building. Curiously, only property-owning citizens were allowed to vote, and in 1970, 54% voted no. And so we have no physical omniplex. But there is a certain spirit of the omniplex that remains. The idea that you can build a, a, a city and build the kind of identity of a city around just a huge structure, I think, is also very, um, we're kind of left with that legacy. You can see it in the same context as, as, as the, the mall building craze that really took off. We can also, as I'm sure you've been thinking, see this legacy in the Downtown Arena project. While the arena is very different from the Omniplex, it's funded privately for starters. It shares a couple of foundational ideas with its retrofuturistic predecessor. It's supposed to revitalize Edmonton's core, and it's supposed to catapult Edmonton to the designation of being world-class. Here's Dr. Cobb again. Edmonton has um, world-class envy syndrome. Yeah, it's like a d disease where uh, it feels like it has to be this thing that's called world-class, and there's no such thing. Like, it doesn't exist. 
So, although the Omniplex is not with us today, at least it can, from the great beyond, teach us to ask an important question. Why? Why are we building this big arena? Why are we trying to be world-class? Why aren't we just trying to be Edmonton? Thanks to Dr. Russell Cobb. Essays by Dr. Cobb on the Omniplex and Edmonton's retro futures can be found in the Wanderer online magazine and is part of the Edmonton City as Museum project. Well, that about does it for this week on All That Matters. Thanks to this week's contributors, Kay Rollins and Nikki Weir. Our theme music is by Dokashi Teru. Additional music today by Arca and Richard Strauss. All That Matters is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton. If you have comments or questions for us, send us an email. We're at allthatmatters at cjsr.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Let us know what you think of the show. Really, we'd love to hear from you. I'm Jonathan Dick. And I'm Chris Chang and Phillips. Thanks for listening.